You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash seanmunger, and if you become a patron, I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. In the year 1800, God directed his attention to the Holy Lands, and a spirit of purity aroused itself within the heart of the Righteous One, foundation of the world, the true genius, our master, Rabbi Haim. May his memory be for a blessing of Volosian, an eminent disciple of our Lord, master and teacher, Rabbi of all the Diaspora, our master, Rabbi Elijah of Vilna. May the memory of the Righteous be for a blessing. May his merit protect all Israel. He raised up the banner of Torah in Israel, establishing yeshivas throughout Russia, and he began to marshal plans for opening the gates of the Holy Land, and then secretly dispatched from among the disciples of the Gaon, the pious one. May his memory endure to the life of the world to come. The Righteous One, Foundation of the World, our Master Rabbi Mendel, may the memory of the righteous be for a blessing, a student of the aforesaid Gaon, together with his son. Arya Neeman, 19th century, exact date unknown. Two hundred and ten years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was the time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 53, The Lithuanian Rabbi On May 10, 1942, local Polish and police units, accompanied by Nazi SS men, blockaded the streets surrounding a neighborhood called Aropsu in the town of Volosian, in what is now the Republic of Belarus. This neighborhood was established the previous year as a makeshift ghetto for the Jewish residents of Volosian, along with Jews from several neighboring towns, altogether numbering about 3,500 people. By May 1942, there weren't that many left. Several massacres beginning in July 1941 
shortly after the invasion of Belarus, had severely depleted Volozhin's Jewish population. But on this day, May 10, 1942, the Belarusian and Polish forces egged on by the SS liquidated almost all the rest of Volozhin's Jews. Many, including a rabbi, were barricaded inside a blacksmith shop and mowed down with machine guns. Others were taken out and marched through the streets of the town to the local cemetery and shot there. Several were killed in or near a house known as the Buloa House. Some were forced to dig their own graves and buried alive in the pit they dug. Many non-Jewish residents of Volozhin sang, danced, and hurled insults at the captive Jews as the police and the SS paraded them through the streets. Almost all of Volozhin's Jews were murdered that day. One source I found said that only six Jews remained in the town after World War II. These kinds of massacres occurred all over German-occupied Russia, the Baltic states, and Eastern Europe. The magnitude of the genocide is hard to come to terms with. Lithuania, the country with which Volozhin was most historically associated, was especially hard hit by the Holocaust. About 195,000 of Lithuania's Jews perished, 95% of Lithuania's Jewish population. The Holocaust was so deadly in Lithuania in part because of the enthusiastic participation of Lithuanian collaborators with the Nazis, a subject that continues to cause controversy down to the present day. A few pockets of Lithuanian-descended Jews, however, a very few, survived the Holocaust, mostly because they were elsewhere when the war came. A small but vibrant cell of Lithuanian Jews had taken root in the United States, in New York City, where transplants from the town of Volozhin operated a synagogue at 209 Madison Street. The building still stands, though it's now a laundromat. Another significant community of Lithuanian Jews accumulated at Broken Hill, a small mining town in New South Wales, Australia, which has a rich and fascinating history of its own. But some, we'll never know exactly how many, some Jews of Lithuanian descent were outside of Lithuania when the Germans came in 1941 because their ancestors had emigrated to the Holy Land in the early part of the 19th century, specifically in the second decade, or at least the second decade in the sense I use it on this show, stretching from roughly 1808 to 1820 or 21. This community, called the Perushim, was disproportionately derived from two areas of Lithuania, Volozhin, and another town about 150 miles away called Shklov, now also in Belarus, and whose Jewish population was also virtually wiped out in the Holocaust. Not all of the second decade emigrants from Lithuania were from these towns, but many were, and they were clearly the center of gravity of something unusual that was happening back in Lithuania among the Jewish community that was driving immigration to the historic land of Israel. In fact, between 1808 and 1840, the Jewish population of what would eventually become the nation of Israel doubled in size. Previously, historians have been hard-pressed to explain this sudden surge in immigration. Israel, I'm going to use that term to describe the traditional land of Israel, not the modern post-1948 nation-state of Israel, it was a hard place to live in the second decade. The journey there from Eastern Europe was difficult and expensive. Yet hundreds of Lithuanian Jews made that journey and signed up for that difficult life. Why? The answer is largely because of a man or two men, a devoted student and his revered teacher, both of whom were rabbis who had an outsized impact 
both spiritually and historically, on the Jews of Lithuania and the world. The title of this episode could refer to either one of them, but to keep the focus on our period, the 18-teens, I'm going to prioritize Kaim ben Yitzhak, known most often as Kaim of Volosian, a rabbi with a unique vision, and, I think, a lasting impression on history. I am a Jew. I was born long after the Holocaust, but its history overshadows our community. Because I am a Jew, the Holocaust is part of my personal story. Every Jew that survived that terrible time is a survivor, a resistor, the seed of another family, another lifetime, where the long traditions of Judaism can be carried on, another generation to carry on into the future. This episode is about what Chaim of Volozhin did in that small backwater town in Lithuania, what he built there, and how it played out in Israel and other parts of the world. But although he never left Lithuania, what he really built there was the most important thing anyone can ever build. The future. Join me now for the story of how he did it. Chaim of Volozhin, the rabbi of Lithuania. Good evening. Before we get into today's show, as usual, a few brief announcements. I have a new podcast. You may have heard the trailer here on the Second Decade feed. It's called Age of Confusion, and it's a story podcast, alternate history. But if you're a history buff, I think you might enjoy it. The format of the show is kind of like this one, done as a narrative history show, except the events it describes are speculative fiction, branching off from real history of the U.S. and the world in the year 1963. The podcast should be available on the usual podcatchers. If it isn't already, it most likely soon will be. And the website for that show is at ageofconfusion.net. If you like this show and my other podcast, Green Screen, I hope you'll give Age of Confusion a try. As usual, some five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts would be especially helpful to help listeners find the show. Shoutouts to a couple of other shows. You've heard me mention historical blindness before, and I will again. Nathaniel Lloyd's show about historical myths, misconceptions, false narratives, and distortions is really illuminating and interesting. Mark Vinette's History of North America podcast is also very much worth checking out, taking a multinational and continental approach to history. He's gotten a very good start, and I'm glad to see that show getting some traction. Also, Pax Britannica, which is a history of Britain, the history of sex, B.T. Newberg's show, he was the man behind the great Dead Ideas podcast, and Des Latham, most famous for his Anglo-Boer War podcast, but who also recently did a shorter show on the Battle of Stalingrad. Des and his South African accent are especially hypnotic, so do check out his shows. He's got a new one on the history of South Africa. One last item of business. I don't believe I've ever in the history of this show taken airtime to address a specific listener. Someone named Katie contacted me via the contact form on the website, gave some really great comments on the show, and suggested that I cover some of the religious history that was going on in the American Northeast during the 18-teens, the background that later gave rise to Joseph Smith and Mormonism. Indeed, what you're describing, Katie, is called by historians the Second Great Awakening, and it is on the extended list of Second Decade topics. I'm addressing Katie directly here because I tried to reply, but the email bounced back. The address given on the contact form was apparently not typed incorrectly. 
but I wanted Katie to know that I received her comments and greatly appreciated them, especially those about my episode on Hawaii. So Katie, thanks. While I'm mentioning listeners by name, I should also thank Aiden, who sent me a wonderful letter, and recent Apple Podcast five-star reviewers, Johnny Cool 5526853, and Mr. Narwhal Speaks. Thank you very much for your ratings, reviews, and compliments. I really appreciate them. And now, in sort of a roundabout segue into the subject of Kaima Velosian, I want to say a few words briefly about a subject I also rarely talk about, the process of putting this show together. This particular episode has a rather unusual origin story, which I think is uniquely relevant to the overall mission of the Second Decade podcast as a whole. Since the early days of this podcast, I've kept a list, both on my computer and in a leather-bound moleskin notebook, of potential episode ideas for this show. Some topics are absolutely self-evident. You can't do a show about the 18-teens without covering Napoleon, lots of Napoleon, and also the War of 1812, Simone Bolivar, The Year Without Summer, and the Climate Anomalies, Jane Austen, Frankenstein, and Thomas Jefferson. Those are low-hanging fruit. Everyone would expect to see those on a list of highlights of the 18-teens, and there's a lot written about them. But the backbone of this show is, I think, made up of the stories of people and events that aren't as well-known, but which are important and historic in their own right. I think listeners really like this. I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten or reviews that mention that I've explored topics or people that most listeners have never heard of before. Not Thomas Jefferson or Jane Austen, but people like Stephen Salisbury, Aaron White, John Caragea, Estwick Evans, Tisha Bergsma, and many more. If the thesis of this show is, as I've maintained since the beginning, that the 18-teens was a uniquely important and formative time in the emergence of the modern world, by definition, there's got to be a lot of stuff that happened in that decade that flies under the radar and that hasn't got the attention from historians that it perhaps deserves. I'm always looking for events and people from the second decade that fit into that category, and I keep track of them on that spreadsheet and in my moleskin notebook. The ones that are truly obscure that even I have never heard of before, finding mention of them in books or articles, start out as a few words scribbled down, often with a question mark, for follow-up research later to see first what or who they are, what their historical importance is, and if they'd make a good show. In my moleskin notebook sometime in 2018, I wrote down the words Kaim of Volozhin slash Volozhin Yeshiva. I don't even know where I found the first mention of him. I might have been surfing Wikipedia, which I do from time to time. Each time I came back to my list of potential topics to research and perhaps develop them, after some inquiry, I decided not to do an episode on Kaim of Volozhin. For one thing, there wasn't a lot written on him, at least not in English. There was a biography, but it was out of print and very hard to get. There was more written on him in Hebrew, but I don't read that language. For another thing, I wasn't sure that the story of a remarkable Lithuanian rabbi who founded one of the most influential yeshivas, or Jewish religious schools of the 19th century, the Volozhin Yeshiva, I wasn't sure that was enough to carry a 40- or 60-minute episode of Second Decade. Then, just recently, in fact, I discovered the link between Kaim of Volozhin and the community of Jews who migrated to Israel from Lithuania in and around the second decade, and I realized that that was the story. Not so much the yeshiva itself, though that is a part of it, 
but the seed of Lithuanian and Russian Jewry that Kaim of Volozhin and his colleagues planted in the Holy Land, which, especially after what happened to Lithuania's Jews in the 20th century, proved to be much more important after Kaim's lifetime than during it. So let's delve into his life. Who was Kaim of Volozhin? And how, after three years of waiting patiently on that page in my moleskin notebook, how did he come to be the star of an episode of Second Decade? First, a word about names. The first thing is, I don't speak Hebrew, so I may butcher them. The second thing is that noteworthy people in Jewish history, particularly rabbis who come to be as venerated and legendary as Kaim of Volozhin was, they go by a lot of names. In Hebrew tradition, before becoming a rabbi, he would have been known as Kaim ben Yitzhak, or Kaim, son of Yitzhak, as Hebrew names can be transliterated any number of ways, and that can also be rendered as Kaim Ikovitz, or Chaim ben Isaac. Yitzhak and Isaac are the same name. And he's known in history and writings by other variations too, most of which attach the place of his birth and residence, Volosian. Thus, he's known as Chaim Volozhiner, or Chaim Walosin, the word Walosin being a transliteration of Volozhin, which is also known in Russian as Voloshin, and that's how you will find it labeled on modern maps. Just to make things simple, I'll refer to him as Chaim of Volozhin throughout this episode. Chaim of Volozhin was born in that town in January 1749, the son of a devout and prosperous Jewish family. His father, Yitzhak, was a leader in the Jewish community, and Kaim, together with his older brother, Simka, were steeped in religious Jewish learning from an early age. Kaim and Simka studied as youths under the rabbi Arya Leib ben Asher Ginsburg, who was something of a legendary figure in the area at the time. Arya Leib previously ran a yeshiva, a school of Jewish learning for boys, in Minsk, about 40 miles away from Volozhin. Rabbi Arya Blib, also known as Shagat Arya, had an intellectual and theological dispute with the chief rabbi of Minsk, Yechiel Halpern. The subject of the dispute was the role of dialectical reasoning, called Pilpul, in the teachings of the Talmud. That's the expansive theological commentary on the Jewish scriptures. Academic disputes are notoriously acrimonious and intractable. It is said that Halpern's supporters chased Aryeb Lieb out of Minsk on the back of an ox cart. He's said to have commented, as the cart was rolling away, What, isn't Minsk burning yet? Which apparently gave rise to a local legend that fires that began in Minsk were attributable to a curse Aryeb Lieb had put on the town. This apparently happened about 1742. After his expulsion from Minsk, Aryeb Lieb settled in Volosian. I mention Arya Lieb's backstory because I think it illuminates the streak of intellectual and academic combativeness that characterizes Kaim of Volozhin and his career later on. Kaim was a bit of a rebel and an iconoclast, as we'll see. He and his brother seem to have studied with Arya Lieb until he left in 1764. When he was 19, some sources say 25, Kaim of Volozhin was introduced to an even more influential teacher and one whose thought would guide him for the rest of his life. This was the legendary Elijah ben Solomon Zalman, better known as Vilna Gaon. This is a term of reverence. Gaon means genius, and it refers to this man's comprehensive understanding of the Talmud, the Torah, 
and Kabbalistic literature. He is not just Vilna Gaon, he is the Vilna Gaon, the genius of Vilnius. The Yivo Encyclopedia of Jews in Eastern Europe describes the Vilna Gaon thusly, quote, He was a spiritual giant, a role model, and source of inspiration for generations, and the central cultural figure of Lithuanian Jewry. To understand who Vilna Gaon was and why he was so influential on Kaima Volosian, we're going to have to delve into his backstory as well. Before we do that, however, I think it may be worth it to set the stage here historically and say a few words about the society these people were living in, what Lithuania was like in the late 18th and early 19th century, the context they came out of. First and foremost, the region whose history we're talking about here is much larger than the modern nation of Lithuania as it exists on the map today. As you already know, Volosian and Minsk are not in that country, but in the modern nation of Belarus, which has existed only since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1992. Lithuania, which traditionally encompassed much of the area along the Baltic Sea and a considerable distance inland, had been a powerful medieval state and one of the last in Europe to be Christianized. It was heavily affected by the fortunes of its neighbors, Poland to the west and south, and the lands of the Kievan Rus, later Russia, to the north and east. In 1569, Poland and Lithuania were combined into a country called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, ruled by the King of Poland who was also Grand Duke of Lithuania, a real union which is similar to the concept of a personal union that we went over in the recent episode series on Norway. The Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania was an extraordinarily large country. It stretched from the Baltic Sea down to almost the Black Sea in the south of the modern country of Ukraine. This country had a parliament, though it was dominated by landed nobility, and its king was elected. Religious freedom was also granted in this country. This accounted in part for the rise and flourishing of Jewish communities in Lithuania, which had a long tradition. Jews were granted privileges and freedom of worship by the Lithuanian Grand Duke in 1388. A tremendous amount of what we today think of as Jewish culture developed in Lithuania in this early modern period. The language of Yiddish developed here based on a variant of German spoken in the Middle Ages. Yeshivas, of the kind Kaim of Volosian studied at as a youth and founded as an adult, began developing no later than the 16th century, and this period represented a golden age of Jewish intellectual thought and learning. Most of Lithuania was rural and agricultural. By the 16th century, the vast majority of what commerce and industry existed in this country was controlled by Jews, which naturally generated resentment and strife with non-Jewish populations. Though land remained in the hands of the powerful landowners, Jews often managed these estates for their absentee owners and collected rents and taxes from the tenants, leading to further resentment against them on behalf of rural, non-Jewish people. A repressive law passed in 1566, and an event in the 1640s and 50s called the Khmelnytsky Uprising, in which tens of thousands of Jews were massacred by local populations, were manifestations of the anti-Semitism that was rife in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Indeed, the Khmelnytsky uprising is regarded in some of these Jewish communities as second only to the Holocaust in the scale of its destructiveness. 
By the 18th century, the rising power of Poland-Lithuania's neighbors, and its own internal decay, undermined it. Sandwiched between Prussia on one side and Russia on the other, the latter growing in strength especially during the reigns of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, Poland-Lithuania became increasingly weak. At the height of the Vilna Gaon's intellectual career and the beginning of Kaima Volosians in 1772, Poland was partitioned between the Habsburg monarchy, Austria basically, Prussia, and Russia. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth tried to adopt a new constitution in 1791, but it didn't stop Catherine's inexorable advance. By 1795, the former Commonwealth was wiped off the map. Lithuania and the area of Minsk and Volozhin was now controlled by Russia. Right about the time of the partition of Poland in the early 1770s, a spiritual and intellectual war was going on within the Jewish community in Lithuania. A new movement called the Hasidim had taken hold in the late 18th century. Sparked by the teachings of Yisrael ben Eliezer, also known as the Baal Shem Tov, who died in 1760, Hasidism was and is a religious revival movement stressing the everyday presence of God and the mystical authority of a religious leader, or Rebbe, different from Rabbi. Explaining what Hasidism is, in a very few short words, is impossible. For purposes of our story, this is what you need to know. Vilna Gaon believed strongly that the Hasidim were heretics, and in 1772 he even convened a meeting in Vilnius to condemn them and cast them out of the Jewish community. It didn't work, but the war between the Hasidim and their opponents, called the Misnagdim, continued for the next several decades. The central tenets of Vilna Gaon's philosophy involved knowledge and study, intensive, critical, methodological study of the Torah, the Talmud, and all rabbinic literature. It's said that he had memorized the Tanakh by the age of four and was arbitrating complex questions of rabbinic law submitted to him by rabbis from all over Europe by the age of 20. This naturally contrasted with the worldview of the Hasidim, who looked down on scholars of the Torah. Vilna Gaon led an ascetic lifestyle. He took no part in worldly affairs and barely socialized with anyone. By contrast, his prominent student, Kaim, owned a cloth manufacturing firm and did pretty well at it. His wife was able to buy jewelry, and he had a large family. As much as Kaim admired his venerated teacher, he didn't emulate him in everything. Although he enjoyed good health for most of his life, the Vilna Gaon began to decline in his late 70s. One source, Studies in Judaism by Solomon Schechter, describes the great man's death. Quote, On the eve of the Day of Atonement, in the year 1797, he fell very ill and gave his blessing to his children. He died on the third day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Joy, relates a contemporary, was turned into days of mourning. In all the streets of Vilnius were heard only lamenting and crying voices. The funeral orations delivered on this occasion in Vilnius, as well as in other Jewish communities, would form a small library. His disciples wept for their master. The people of Vilnius for the ornament of their native town, and the feeling of the Jews in general was that the Ark of God was taken away. Before he died, though, Vilna Gaon apparently gave a last wish to his intellectual heir and disciple, Kaim of Volosian. Solomon Schechter described it, quote, 
Being convinced that the study of the Torah is the very life of Judaism, but that this study must be conducted in a scientific, not a scholastic way, he bade his chief disciple to found a college in which rabbinical literature should be taught according to his own true method. End quote. Chaim did as his master asked. In 1803, he founded the Volosian Yeshiva based on the teachings and intellectual methods of the Vilna Gaon. Initially, there were ten students. Financially, the institution couldn't support itself. Chaim's wife sold her jewelry for money to keep the school open, and Chaim sent out missionaries to various Jewish communities in Russia to appeal for voluntary donations for the school. In 1806, a building was constructed to house the yeshiva. The building still exists to this day in Volosian. The yeshiva itself continued in operation until 1892, when it was closed down as a result of imperial Russian authorities pressuring communities to send their children to secular schools. The Volozhin Yeshiva, during its 90 years of operation, was the blueprint for numerous yeshivas that were established in Lithuania during the 19th century. In one limited interpretation, this might be the end of the story of Chaim of Volozhin, a noted Talmud scholar, beloved rabbi, pillar of the community, whose foundation of one of the most influential schools of Jewish learning in modern European history, could stand alone as his historical contribution. But this is only part of the story, and not even the most important part. Underneath all of this, the Vilna Gaon, Chaim of Volosian, and various other disciples all shared another powerful and lesser explored idea that was circulating in Jewish Lithuania at the beginning of the 19th century. To put it as simply as possible, they believed that the Messiah was coming in the year 1840, and they wanted as many of their people as possible to be in the land of Israel when that happened. The subject of the Messiah in Judaism is incredibly complex. I'm a historian, not a theologian, so I'm neither competent nor inclined to give anything even close to a comprehensive sketch of how this concept sits in the faith and theology of Judaism. For purposes of our story, you should know the absolute basics. The Messiah is prophesied to be a direct descendant of King David, who will restore the temple in Jerusalem, gather the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and make it possible to practice all 613 of the commandments, the mitzvot, given to the Jewish people by God. There are certain requirements that the Messiah is said to have to meet. Jesus, at least in Jewish doctrine, didn't meet any of them. Hence the basic theological disagreement between Judaism and Christianity, which can, perhaps unfairly, be boiled down to the Jews are waiting for the Messiah to come, and the Christians are waiting for him to come back. Certain Jewish texts, such as the Talmud, the Midrash, and the Zohar, the source text of Kabbalah, the mystical sect of Judaism, predict that the Messiah will come 6,000 years after creation. The traditional Jewish calendar marks time from what's believed to be the moment of creation. This year, 2021 on our Christian-derived Gregorian calendar, is in the Jewish calendar the year 5781, at least until September when it ticks over to 5782. The year 6000 on the Jewish calendar will begin on September 29th, 2239, a little more than 200 years from now. But this is not cut and dried. 
In some interpretations of Jewish sources, the Messiah himself will rule for 40 years, and the year 6000 is the end point of that reign. But other interpretations, specifically a part of the Talmud called the Sanhedrin and the Zohar, hold that the period of the Messiah's reign will be not 40 years, but 400. That would mean that the Messiah's arrival would coincide not with the year 6000, but 400 years earlier, the year on the Jewish calendar, 5600. That year began in September 1839 and lasted through September 1840. The year 5600 prophecy was not accepted in all Jewish communities, far from it. But we know that it was part of the Vilna Gaon's theology, and specifically that it was taught in the Volosian Yeshiva by Chaim. A man named Benjamin Berry, writing in the 1840s, recalled as a student at the Volosian Yeshiva that the Messiah was discussed in the interval between Saturday afternoon prayer and the evening prayer marking the end of Shabbat. A text written by the Vilna Gaon referring to the 5600 prophecy was frequently referred to in these classes. Ironically, even the Hasidim, the Vilna Gaon's archenemies, seemed to believe the Messiah would come in 5600. It's worth mentioning that Chaim of Volosian took a different view of the Hasidim than the Vilna Gaon did, one of the few things on which they differed. Chaim did not believe they were heretics. He didn't like them, and he wrote several polemics against them, but he did not regard them as heretical. The desire to be in Israel when the Messiah came, that is, before 1839, was a strong one, and it appears to have been the motivating factor behind significant numbers of the Vilna Gaon's disciples who started to work seriously toward the project of large-scale Jewish emigration from Lithuania to the Holy Land in the years just before the second decade began. In fact, the Vilna Gaon himself once attempted to emigrate to Israel to undertake Aliyah, which means ascent in Hebrew. In the sources I consulted, I couldn't find out much about this trip, when it happened or under what circumstances, but apparently he never made it out of Germany and returned home. To steal a line from Indiana Jones, he seems to have been much more of a bookworm, not a field man. But clearly, the desire to reach the Holy Land in advance of the beginning of the Messianic Age was a dream that never died in him, nor his followers. Going to Israel in the early 19th century was not an easy thing. To say nothing of the journey itself, which I'll talk about, the condition of the Holy Land was, at that time, let's just say, less than ideal. Jerusalem and the region of Israel had fallen under the rule of the Ottoman sultans in 1516, after a war the Ottomans fought with the Mamluk Sultanate, then in serious decline. The Ottomans largely neglected Israel once they had it. But a small Jewish community continued to live there. In the late 17th century, a Polish rabbi, Judah He Hasid, known as Judah the Pious, organized an aliyah of about 1,500 people, who arrived in Jerusalem in the fall of 1700. Judah the pious himself died shortly after he arrived. This influx of pilgrims overwhelmed the resources of the Jewish community in Israel. Conflicts developed between them. Not all were homogenous. There were Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews. I'll explain the difference in a minute. One of the legacies of the Judah the pious immigration, however, was the building of the famous Herva Synagogue in Jerusalem, on the site of a previous house of worship. 
The Ashkenazim who built the synagogue, however, ran out of money before they could finish it. They were forced to borrow money from local Arabs, loans they couldn't pay back. In 1720, the Arab creditors marched on Herva Synagogue and burned it down. The Ottomans held all the Ashkenazi Jews responsible for these debts, which remained outstanding for a long time. This becomes important later. The Jews of the Holy Land under the Ottomans centered around four important cities, Jerusalem, Hebron, Tiberias, and Safed. By the time of the second decade, the roads between these cities were generally impassable. There were few economic opportunities for local Jews, or for anyone else for that matter. Disease outbreaks and earthquakes were common. Local Jews, especially the Ashkenazi, lived separately from local populations, knew no Arabic, and had poor relationships with their neighbors. They were distrusted. Sanitation was bad. That was a problem, because many of the mitzvot, the commandments, are aimed at organizing clean and sustainable Jewish communities. In short, Israel may have been a promised land in theology and scripture, but it was hardly one in practice. Yet the undeniable historical evidence shows that many of the Jews of Lithuania were eager to get there, and they were motivated specifically by the teachings of the Vilna Gaon. The first organized effort to help Jews of Lithuania reach Israel seems to have gotten started in 1806. It happened in Shaklov, the second of those important Jewish centers I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, and it was organized by two wealthy residents of the town, Benjamin and Hillel Rivlin, father and son, who were also distant cousins of the Vilna Gaon. The origins of the immigration mission are described in a book called Amud Hai Yemini by Abraham ben Asher Anshul, a Jewish preacher from Minsk. The book was published in 1811, but appears to have been written in the summer of 1809. This book describes a secret organization dedicated to organizing the Aliyah. Its leaders were a man called Saul ben Joseph from Vilnius, Abraham Abela Pasweller, who was a rabbinic judge in Vilnius, and, of course, Kaim of Volosian, Vilna Gaon's spiritual heir and lieutenant. Abraham ben Asher Ashel wrote this, quote, I longed for it, meaning Aliyah, and hoped for it from afar, and how mighty was my desire for it, and my soul yearned greatly. I, like all of them, all of us, sons of one man, hewn from one place, but what can I do for my family, for the food is gone from our bins, and the children are weak, end quote. The phrase, sons of one man, in that passage is a deliberate echo of the Torah, a verse in Genesis referring to the sons of Abraham, but in this context, it seems to have a double meaning. It also appears to refer to the Vilna Gaon. Abraham ben Asher Ashel wasn't the only person writing books for the Jewish community to raise money for the trip to Israel. Another book in Hebrew was published in Vilnius in 1812, called the Sha'are Zadek, which means Gates of Righteousness. This book was written by one Abraham Danzig, who was the father-in-law to one of the Vilna Gaon's children. It was meant as sort of an inspiration to Jewish leaders in Lithuania, describing the reasons for Aliyah, the spiritual redemption that the people would receive when they got there, and who should emigrate and why. But the main purpose of the book seems to have been financial, to raise money for the trip, not merely through direct sales, but by encouraging gifting and donations by those in the Jewish community who wanted to help their brethren find redemption in Israel. 
There were numerous practical problems for Jews now living in the Russian Empire trying to get out of the country and travel to Israel, even aside from the obvious expense. For one thing, travel throughout and from Europe to other parts of the world at the beginning of the second decade was a tricky business. This was the period from 1808 to 1812 in Russia, the exact period when international tensions were ratcheting up between Russia and Napoleon's France, which would ultimately end in Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. The Russian government controlled who left the country. You had to have a passport, but unlike passports today, at this time you had to have specific written permission issued by a court to leave for a specific purpose. The Russians weren't in the habit of granting Jews permission to emigrate to Israel. Those who wanted to go had to deceive the Russian courts, giving fake reasons for wanting to leave. European governments did not want Jews to immigrate, not out of any desire to hang on to them, but rather to hang on to their money. Most people who left went in family units, and they sold all their property and converted it into cash to take with them. Thus, immigration to Israel meant substantial outflow of economic assets, problematic in cash-poor economies, which most of these were in the early 19th century. A report from 1812 from the Austrian government Yes, Jewish immigration was going on in countries other than Russia. Anyway, an 1812 Austrian report survives, noting that Jews leaving Galicia typically told local courts they were going on pilgrimage, but they were actually intending to immigrate permanently. Assuming you could get permission, you then had to travel to a port and find a ship that would take you to the Levant. Odessa on the Black Sea was apparently a popular jumping-off point. Though a fishing village since antiquity and later a fortress site, Odessa was not founded as a major Russian port until 1795, late in the reign of Catherine the Great. Odessa's population exploded between 1795 and the middle of the second decade. Apparently it was chaotic, with all sorts of cosmopolitan people coming and going, and ship captains probably weren't too picky about the passengers they took so long as they could pay. This is undoubtedly not the only route that Jews took to reach Israel in the second decade. Some seem to have gone overland from Lithuania, through the Balkans and into Turkey to Constantinople, and then by boat from Constantinople to Accra, the old medieval port in the Holy Land. The travelers who took this route were following in the footsteps of the Crusaders, who had come several centuries before. The groups of immigrants were apparently organized back in Lithuania and led by rabbis or community leaders, or missionaries who would come from Israel specifically to lead groups from Europe back there. Typically groups, usually a couple of families, would leave in the spring, travel through the period of good weather, and arrive in Israel at the end of summer. Part of the money that had to be raised was for distribution to other Jews already there, to defray the same sort of costs that doomed Judah the Pious's group in 1700. The idea of this long pilgrimage from Lithuania to Jerusalem or thereabouts is fascinating to me. I was hoping to find a first-person account of one of these harrowing voyages, whether by sea from Odessa or overland to Constantinople, but alas, I couldn't. I suspect if there are such accounts, they're mostly written in Hebrew. My apologies if there are some accessible sources that I'm missing. The first group, specifically led by disciples of the Vilna Gaon, departed in the spring of 1808. It was led by one Menachem Mendel of the village of Shaklov. Apparently the leaders of these groups came more often from Shaklov than from Volozhin. 
A second group left the next year in 1809. That group was led by Chaim ben Tobias and a man named Israel, both from Shaklov. We'll hear from Israel of Shaklov in a moment. A letter survives dated March 21st, 1811, written by the nobles of Vilnius, the Jewish elders there, which wound up in the possession of Abraham Danzig, who, as you recall, wrote that book trying to raise money. Part of the letter reads, quote, The matter occurring at the proper time, for in those days and at this time, several esteemed and leading members of our community will be journeying to our holy land. Important men, notables, confident people, and with God's help, they will reach there soundly. End quote. The 1811 group included Abraham Solomon Zalman Zoref, age 26, his wife Hannah, and their three kids. The leader was one Elijah Bialystoker. In 1813, another group took off. This was led by Solomon Zalman Shapira, who was a direct disciple of Kaim of Volosian. Solomon brought his wife, daughter, and her husband, Arya ben Yarachmel. Another group left in the spring of 1819 and were en route during Passover of that year. That group included a wealthy merchant, Gershon Harkavi, who had studied with the Vilna Gaon for a year. However, immigration from Lithuania appears to have slowed to a trickle after 1813, for reasons I'll discuss in a moment. It's hard to know exactly how many Jews came to Israel from Europe or even from North Africa or other parts of the Ottoman Empire during the 40 years between the start of the 19th century and 1840. Several of the sources I consulted said that the Jewish population of the Holy Land doubled in this period, but few are forthcoming with hard numbers. Of this migration, however, the single most important group was the Lithuanian Jews motivated by the teachings of the Vilna Gaon, and the second decade was undoubtedly the peak of their migration. There were 511 people who came to Israel, as a result of the Gaon's teachings. Kaim of Volosian had a great deal to do with this. Indeed, he seems to have been the main force behind it, despite never going himself or even attempting to, as the Vilna Gaon apparently did. This group, the ones specifically identified with the Vilna Gaon, are known as the Perushim. That's an old Hebrew word, and it's the same word as the Pharisees. The group mentioned in the Bible of traditional Jews in the time of the Second Temple who strictly applied Jewish law to facets of everyday life. I confess I don't fully understand the identification between the biblical Pharisees and the Perushim who came from Lithuania in the second decade. This is the kind of thing Dr. Henry Abramson, the very popular online historian of Judaism, would know off the top of his head. So what did these people, the Perushim, find when they arrived in Israel? Well, as you might expect, life in the Holy Land was very hard. I explained the reasons why. They settled mostly in Safed, where they lived in small, crowded neighborhoods. There were no doctors. Clean water was a problem. Many of the settlers had brought agricultural tools with them from Europe, and one of the chief tasks was to purchase land to farm and build up an agricultural and economic base. One of the emigrants, Kaim Katz, spoke of this in a letter date not certain, but I think from shortly after their arrival, probably during the second decade. Quote, Concerning distributions sent for the purpose of fulfilling commandments contingent on the land, we have already purchased real property in accordance with the view of our beloved, the true, pious, and renowned Gaon, our master, Rabbi Hayim, may his lamp burn brightly, of Volosian. 
and such that the seller conveyed to the purchaser here on behalf of all his participating partners. And it appears we will purchase other properties that may come along if the time and place are proper. End quote. This was promising, but one of the main objects of the quest remained out of reach. That was Jerusalem. The Vilna Gaon's program for redemption in the Holy Land involved building up the Jewish community in Jerusalem, and specifically rehabilitating the old Herva synagogue, which, as you recall, had been burned down by Arabs in 1721. There was a problem with Ashkenazi Jews entering Jerusalem. Just so you don't get confused, basically Ashkenazi are Jews of Germanic or Eastern European descent. Sephardic Jews are those who originated mainly in the region of Spain and Portugal. The Lithuanian followers of the Vilna Gaon were, of course, Ashkenazi. Significant numbers of Sephardic Jews lived in Jerusalem, but the settlers feared that the Sephardim wouldn't get along with them, and there would be strife. Even more daunting, the Arab creditors who held those old promissory notes, now nearly a century old, held any Ashkenazi liable for them, which is why Herva Synagogue remained in ruins, now almost a hundred years after the fire. The Perushim were also surprised and somewhat chagrined to find, among the Jews who already lived in Israel, Hasidim, the old enemies of the Vilna Gaon. A group of Hasidim had come to the Holy Land independently about 1777. The presence of Hasidim side by side with the new arrivals caused considerable strife in Safed, and this may be where Kaim of Volosian's slightly more moderate views on them might have helped. As you remember, he disliked the Hasidim, but he at least conceded they weren't heretics and had more or less pure motives, however misguided he thought they were. There was eventually cooperation between the Perushim and the Hasidic communities in Safed. The people set aside their doctrinal differences and did what they could for one another. But the seed that had taken root in Safed was very fragile. Unfortunately, in 1813, shortly after they got there, a terrible tragedy struck them. Disease. In 1813, an epidemic began raging in Syria and spread to various parts of the Ottoman Empire. Cholera was a constant problem, and there were outbreaks of this, but the 1813 and eventually 1814 epidemics seemed to have been plague. There was a lot of plague in the Ottoman Empire in the second decade. You may remember that an outbreak of plague, specifically in Bucharest, was the subject of an earlier episode of Second Decade, number 41, Karagea's Plague. There appears to have been a widespread epidemic throughout Ottoman lands between 1812 and 1815. In 1813, roughly the same time as the plague was raking through Bucharest, it was Israel's turn. Israel of Shaklov, one of the leaders of the 1809 Aliyah, described the disaster in a book he published in Safed in 1836. Quote, Many people fled in columns to the deserts and forests. I, too, together with my family, journeyed to the holy city of Jerusalem, and en route, the loveliness of my home, the wife of my youth, Henya, died. I buried her en route in the city of Shepharam. When I reached the holy city of Jerusalem, I found darkness in all quarters, death entering through our windows. I lied on the roof, crying and pleading before our Father in heaven, and my modest little daughter Shindel, may she live, was lying by me, and my tears ran down my cheeks, my eyes poured forth water on account of all I had suffered, and my agony was as great as the sea. 
End quote. Israel of Shaklov had a lot to mourn for. In addition to his wife Henya, who died on June 3, 1813, his son-in-law Joel died on July 25th. On August 10th, he lost his daughter Leah. And the very next day, his son Nachman died. Two days later, another daughter, Esther, and his son Zayev also died. And finally, his parents, Rabbi Samuel and Malka, died too. The only survivor of the family, besides Israel himself, was the youngest daughter he mentioned, Shindel. The plague of 1813 was a nightmare for the Perushim. We don't know for sure how many of the Perushim died in the plagues of 1813 and 1814. It may have been most of them. And it wasn't to be the last of the disasters. A terrible earthquake in 1837 killed over 2,000 Jews in Israel, including 200 of the Perushim community, which had just begun to struggle back from the brink. The accounts of the survivors paint a bleak picture of almost unending suffering from numerous causes. Plague, cholera, earthquakes, attacks and raids by Arabs, whether Muslim or Christian. The plague put a damper on further immigration from Lithuania. A few more groups did come in the 1820s and 30s, the last few years before the Messianic times were supposed to begin. But clearly the peak of the wave of immigration, motivated by the Vilna Gaon, had passed by the end of the second decade. And then its driving light, back in Volosian, went out too. I couldn't find an account of the death of Kaim of Volosian. I would have liked to. All I can tell you is the date of his death, June 14, 1821. He was 72 years old and probably surrounded by loving family and tearful disciples. His tombstone, a huge slab of gray granite with Hebrew writing, is still visible in Volosian. I'll post a picture of it on the webpage for this episode. Chaim's son Isaac took over as head of the Volosian yeshiva after his father's death. Isaac helped Chaim of Volosian's word and thought survive through the ages. He edited his father's unpublished book, Nefesh HaChaim, a Kabbalistic book which also expounded, once again, Chaim's opposition to Hasidism. The book was published by Isaac in Vilnius in 1824. Isaac, or Yitzhak, continued to run the Volozhin yeshiva for the rest of his life. He died in 1849, and the leadership of the yeshiva passed to his son-in-law. As I said in the first half of the episode, the Volozhin yeshiva itself continued on until it was closed in 1892. Meanwhile, in Israel, the survivors of the plague among the Perushim regrouped. A power struggle broke out for leadership of the community between Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Shaklov, who would come with the very first Aliyah in 1808, and Israel of Shaklov, who I quoted a minute ago. They referred their dispute to the Jewish nobles of Vilnius for resolution. The nobles decided that a new Perushim community should be established in Jerusalem. Rabbi Menachem brought a group of them to that city in 1815. They were determined to rebuild Herva Synagogue, now even more determined after the disasters and hardships that they had suffered. In 1819, after three years of pleading with the Ottoman court in Constantinople for a decree that would have prevented the Arab creditors from pressing their 18th century debts against the Perushim, you may remember that was a major sticking point, Rabbi Menachem finally succeeded. They obtained the absolution from the debts, but this was only the beginning of the odyssey to restore Herva Synagogue. Indeed, that effort didn't bear fruit until after 1831, when Muhammad Ali, 
a former Ottoman military commander from Albania, established autonomous rule in Egypt and annexed Israel to his domains. But even this progress was slow. Eventually, the Perushim and their descendants finally broke ground on the reconstruction of the Holy Synagogue in Jerusalem, but not until 1855, long after the second decade ended. Muhammad Ali had in fact been deposed by then, and the prophesied time of the Messiah's coming, the year 1840, had come and gone. So what about that? Obviously, the Messiah did not come in 1840. According to various sources, there was a crisis of faith that swept the Perushim community when the year 5600 ended and the Messiah didn't appear. Some of the number converted to Christianity. Christian missionaries seized on the disconfirmed prophecy as an opportunity to make some converts. Others redoubled their faith or shifted to other interpretations. Some admitted they'd been wrong. A Jerusalem rabbi, Judah ben Solomon HaKohen, wrote in a book published in 1843, quote, I have seen fit to teach understanding to the people. They have sought to reveal the time of the end, and some of our people erred in the vision, and they trusted in accord with their limited understanding in the year 5600, wandering as blind men in the streets. They erred in thinking that the statement referred to the coming of the Messiah, and now that they see the time has passed, by reason of our many sins, some of them have apostatized, end quote. After all, the whole thing was based on an interpretation of when redemption might come earlier than the year 6000. The year 6000 had not, and as of this recording, has not yet arrived. It won't until the 23rd century. There will undoubtedly be Jews around then. Whether the Messiah actually appears at that time or not is thankfully a problem that this particular Jew will not have to deal with. As we leave this story, I don't want it to end on a down note. It could easily do that, because there's a lot of sadness here. The Perushim in Israel, ravaged by plague, a long road to rebuild the synagogue, Kaim of Elosian dead, the Messiah that didn't come. Then also recall where we began this story in the Holocaust, where the vast majority of Jews in Volosian, and indeed all of Lithuania, were wiped out by the Nazis. But the seed that the Vilna Gaon and his students, Kaim of Volosian, planted in the Holy Land, the Perushim that went there in the second decade, a core group of them did survive, and eventually they thrived and lived and carried on their religious and cultural traditions. They were there when Israel was founded in 1948. They're still there today. In Jewish history, survival equals resistance. If you still have any doubt, about the incredible legacy of Kaim of Volosian, the Lithuanian rabbi, and the great effect he had on the world, I'm going to end this episode with one amazing fact that I've sandbagged up until now. Before this episode, you probably never heard of Kaim of Volosian, but you probably have heard of someone related to him. Kaim's great-great-grandson was Shimon Peres, prime minister and president of Israel, the protege of David Ben-Gurion, who founded the State of Israel in 1948. Shimon Peres was the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1994. Few other individual men in history have ever accomplished more for their people than Shimon Peres did. That is the legacy of Kaim of Volosian. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. 
can also find me and support my work on Patreon, patreon.com slash Sean Munger. Listen to my other podcast, Green Screen, which is available on the Apple Store, Google Podcasts, and all the major podcatchers. Those of you who like the environmental history aspects of this show will probably enjoy Green Screen. And my new show, Age of Confusion, a fiction alternate history podcast, is also available, or will be soon, on the major podcatchers. My historical sources for this episode include Hastening Redemption, Messianism, and the Resettlement of the Land of Israel by Ari Morgenstern, Oxford University Press, 2006, Dispersion and the Longing for Zion, 1240-1840, also by Ari Morgenstern, Asia Online, Winter 2002, and a very old source, Studies in Judaism by Solomon Schechter, New York Macmillan and Company, 1896. The theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. The intro for this episode includes a clip from O Rock of Israel by composer Ernest Bloch, performed at the Jewish Music Festival of July 28, 1955, digitized as part of the Yiddish Book Center's Francis Brandt Online Yiddish Audio Library. You can visit my website at seanmunger.com and see the online courses that are available now. Also, check out my YouTube channel. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. <laughs>